Coming to you from the Forge of Freedom studio in the heart of America, a podcast dedicated to preserving freedom and inspiring personal success. Freedom is born and lives through you, the individual, and it dies in the shadows of tyranny. Motivating our listeners to become well-rounded, freedom-minded people with the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. The Tree of Liberty lives on through you, the Forge of Freedom. And now here's your host, Alex Uli. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode 69 of the Forge of Freedom. Uh, today for Monday Gun Day, I've got Mike Uli back in the studio. Of course, Mike, uh, you know from previous episodes, is a, an attorney, a firearms instructor, and my father. And today we're going to talk about um, basically how we should approach those we don't agree with when it comes to our right to keep and bear arms. And we're going to suggest, we're actually going to share some tidbits from an article that inspired this episode, as well as well as a few other suggestions. And the article we're going to be talking about is, a, is an article at Ammo Land. And of course, I'll link to the to the article in the show notes. But the article is called Four Questions to Ask Your Next Gun Control in Your Next Gun Control Debate. And I think the questions that are suggested in the article are good, uh, but but we want to get into the the topic a little bit because. Uh, frankly, while sometimes it's fun to engage in in debate where there's lots of mudslinging, uh, you're you're not going to get anywhere that way typically. So um, we're going to suggest a different approach here. I think there's some uh, there's a spectrum in terms of an approach approaches that you can take, uh, but I think that the article points out some some good notions here. So, Mike, first of all, welcome to the show, and uh, I'd like to looking forward to discussing this topic. Hey, I almost said good morning because we usually do these in the morning. But there was some delay today, so it's afternoon. Yeah. Good to be here. Yeah. And I'm already going to debate a little bit Okay, um, because I'm not going to suggest to you that you do anything necessarily in terms of your arguments. I'm going to suggest that you pick the most effective process for whatever you're trying to accomplish because I think a little bit of caustic attitude can get you – uh, where you want to be in some cases, but we'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. Well, I, I think here when, when you're talking of caustic, you're, it's more of an abrasive approach to to the uh, debate, right? Yeah. It's not oh. even not even necessarily a debate. Oftentimes, it's uh, I think some what we have in mind is in social media where there's sort of this uh, sarcastic back and forth sometimes, and you're not really debating the person so much as stating your position and like this is where we stand yeah and of course a lot of times you're if you're doing this in social media which i don't do um but if you're doing that too i mean i think sometimes it's you're not doing it for the person on the other side you're doing it for somebody else that may yeah. be seeing it Can, but one other thing i want to if i could just a little bit that kind of what led me to talk to you about this subject was one of the folks i listen to a lot is his gun is his uh, gun talk radio tom gresham and uh, he's a lately, and I say lately, I don't mean the last few weeks, but he's a real advocate for 
not really or, or for being more inclusive with respect to, to the uh, people that, that we want to come to the Second Amendment community and taking a more diplomatic diplomat. Approach. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah. We're taking a more diplomatic approach to a wide variety of people to bring them to our way of thinking in terms of, you know, our values and, and valuing freedom, particularly when it comes to gun rights. Um, but he's talked about that on his radio show. He also, which you were in attendance, I watched over the Internet. He also talked about this at the uh, gun rights policy conference that was conducted two or three weeks ago, something like that, uh, that's sponsored by the Second Amendment Foundation. And then this past week, I know I give credit where credit's due on all this, because as with most things, I don't have any original ideas. Um, Masada, you put out a little, he, he puts out what you ought to read, I think. Maybe it's from Backwoods Journal or Backwoods Home Home yeah. Journal, yeah. But he puts out a little email thing. I get, I think, once a week. I'm not sure. And it's Backwoods Home Magazine, and yeah. I'll and I'll link to that in the yeah. show notes too. But but he linked to an article uh, from Ammo Land by uh, Tom McHale. Tom McHale, and that's one of the. So most of these ideas that we're going to talk about today come from those sources, and I just wanted to give credit to those people because I think it's something that we need to talk about because. You know, sometimes folks on our side are a little less diplomatic than maybe is applicable uh, if they're trying to bring people over to our side. Yeah, and I think, like I said, I think there's a, a place, and like you alluded to, there's a place for a different type of voice depending on who the listener is. And oftentimes, all the gun rights groups that we've talked about are, are great organizations, uh, Second Amendment Foundation, Gun Owners of America, Firearms Policy Coalition. Highly recommend that you support each of them to the, the greatest extent that you can. But Firearms Policy Coalition, for instance, takes the more abrasive approach oftentimes, at least on their social media. And uh, I know they've caught some flack from some other folks in the Second Amendment advocacy world, uh, but they they stick to their approach. And I think it's good to reach some people, but not everybody. Yeah. Let's give an example. Yeah. I, mean, I like it. Okay. And this is one way, one, one area where it works. Uh, and I want to give an attaboy to the Firearms Policy Coalition. They are almost always first or nearly first with this litigation that goes on, whether it's about, um, uh, force reset triggers or uh, pistol braces or new mech, whatever it is, they're always the, out there at the, at the edge challenging uh, the government tyrants with regard to the second amendment. But they are a little more raw with their social media and some of the things they say, for instance, here's an example here here's on a, Twitter and I'll share this as well. If nothing else, you can have access to their Twitter page. Yeah, that's, and follow them. They're really active on their Twitter account. Uh, but it says someone on X, I keep calling it Twitter, on X says, I won't have any kids until the Second Amendment is abolished. I'm sorry, but I don't want my kids to fear for their lives every time they are dressed up in their uniforms. Congress must act immediately. And so they posted that, and Firearms Policy Coalition responded and said, you not reproducing is a net benefit to society. <laughs> so that is the opposite of diplomatic. And I think is obviously not going to garner the support of this person that they're responding to. Yeah, I don't think that person uh, sent them money. No, exactly. But I think it helps embolden the people who do support them. But I send them money. I yeah. like them. I send them money every month. So yeah. that's one way where you can be a little raw, speak the truth, and 
some people are going to like that and you're going to, you know, it's, it's yeah. going to accomplish a goal, which they do need money. I mean, regardless, yeah. they need money to do this litigation. So in some respects, being less diplomatic can serve your goals. Yeah. And we're going to get into the article here in just a moment, but that's one point that's really important is knowing your audience and knowing who you're trying to reach. And that may change depending on who you're talking to, whether that's in a personal conversation or on social media or otherwise. So knowing your audience is incredibly important. So with that said, Mike, let's let's go ahead and get into this article from by Tom McHale from Ammoland. Again, it's called uh, Four Questions to Ask in Your Next Gun Control Debate. And part of this is the timing, like you said, because uh, – Tom Gresham talked about it at Gun Rights Policy Conference. You saw the article by Masad Ayub at Backwoods Home Magazine, and then this linked article uh, to Ammoland that Masad Ayub shared. But I think this is important too, timing-wise, because we're coming up on Thanksgiving, and lots of people see family members and friends that they don't see a lot throughout the year. And sometimes, whether it's gun-related or a totally separate topic like religion or foreign policy or politics, I think some of the principles that we talk about here with respect to debating gun control also apply in those other topics as well. Okay. So I think these are important points to keep in mind uh, in any tough conversation. So with that said, Mike, let's get, let's get into the article a little bit here. Uh, again, four questions to ask in your next gun control debate by Tom McHale and uh, well, I, go ahead, Mike. Well, I just gonna, this is I feel a little guilty in some ways because I, I, I'm preaching this stuff and I don't necessarily follow it very well. It's kind of the pot, pot calling the kettle black a little bit, but I do think this advice is great advice. Well, that's part so, of the point of this podcast, too, is to uh, to help sort of help us stay engaged and, and practice what we preach. And, yeah. and I think that, that this is not just for our listeners, but for us as well. But he starts out with some cliff notes that I think are important before you get to the four questions that he addresses. And the four questions are just questions you kind of hear generically in the gun control debate. Now, they're not necessarily exactly poignant right now, um, but you'll hear them. But anyway, some of the cliff notes that he talked about is, you know, that just doesn't do any good calling the other side stupid. Um or just getting loud and repeating facts that you have memorized. That's not gonna. That's not gonna convince anybody. Number one, I mean, you generally don't convince anybody of anything right there in the moment of an argument. Anyway, um, generally, you're wanting to just plant some seeds that they may uh, that may be used down the road to um, draw them to, to to reach some conclusions that are consistent with with uh, freedom. Hopefully. Well, and I think part of the point with this first cliff note, don't call the other side stupid, is that if if somebody says, uh, you know, mass shootings only happen in, in the United States, it's a uniquely American thing. We know that's not true. They happen all over the world. Uh, in fact, the United States is not an outlier in almost any regard with respect to mass shootings. But it doesn't help to say the other person, you're wrong and you're stupid. Okay, yeah. Even just you're wrong, you don't have to call them stupid. A lot of times people will take you're wrong as you're stupid. Yeah. Um, it, so it might be more like, you know what? I've done some research on that. And in fact, per capita, the United States doesn't lead the world in murders. There are these, uh, you know, you, you can start pick out a few things um, where you can, you can use to start, you know, talking to people about it. I want, you know, look that up or whatever. And, and John Lott is a great source for that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and yeah, obviously it helps to know uh, your position and, and know, 
I think even more know the position of the person that you're speaking with, mm-hmm. uh, because you have to know their arguments as well or better than they do. Uh, to and and this is a point that John Korea makes, and you mentioned Tom Gresham spoke at Gun Rights Policy Conference. John Korea also spoke on a similar in a similar vein at Gun Rights Policy Conference. You have to meet people where they are, and you have to figure that out. And a lot of times you do that through questions, not through blanket statements about they're right or they're wrong. Yeah, because you got to remember these people have been a lot of times inundated with these statements, and they've come from you know, Barack Obama has made some statements which were just clearly, unequivocally, factually inaccurate. Yeah. And people, you know, people think he's credible in lots of other areas. Some people do. And so they're going to take that as word. They hear those same things in the media that are repeated. So they begin to, be, to to say, hey, these things are true. They accept them as true without any real evidence yeah. um, of the truthfulness of the statements that they make. So I think that's important to and start asking questions. Hey, did you know that? Whatever. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that the other cliff note that we have here is um, one that I think is pretty, pretty good. I never thought of this before. I, I thought of the list. You need to listen. And I'm not good about that. You need to be quiet. Don't interrupt. Let them speak. But uh, what uh, this cliff note also says is what you're doing there when you're silent, you're listening, you're assimilating what they're saying. In effect, you're buying time credit so that you can speak after they've made their point. So mm-hmm. I think that's a good that, that's a good thing. It's always a good thing to listen and try to be quiet. Once again, the pot calling the kettle black here, but that's one of the things we need to do better. Yeah, that, better. that's that's one thing that not everybody is good with with social cues, but I think for the most part people try to find balance in a conversation. And one of those ways is with time, not just information. And sometimes you, you won't find that balance or you'll be in a conversation with somebody who just talks. But oftentimes, if you listen, you can find, find out where they are, like number one, like I said with John Korea. But also, you can find out what their assumptions are and you can ask questions about their assumptions. And challenge, it's almost a Socratic dialogue. Uh, you, you, they'll say all this stuff and you got to make sure you listen to it. And ask them about that assumption that they made or that assumption that they had, because that's where you really break down the foundations of their view and get them to reconsider their position. You don't tell them what to think. You listen to their position, and then you question them about the underlying assumptions. Yeah, and we'll give some examples about that. Just We'll get to some meat and potatoes in a few minutes, how you can do this. We're going to talk about Australia, for instance, and some of the assumptions people make about the effects of gun control in Australia. So yeah. that's what you're talking about right there. So we've got four here. You've talked about two cliff notes. What's the next one there, Mike? Uh, I already mentioned this. Really, people don't are not going to change their minds right there in the middle of the argument. Mm-hmm. You're giving them things to think about, questions. Um, and, and maybe over time, they'll hear it's from somebody else or they'll think about it. I know me, you know, when I have a problem that I'm trying to solve or come to some conclusion about it, maybe it five o'clock in the morning when I wake up that some idea hits me or whatever. And that's the same way with, you know, with it, most people, I think. Um, so they're not in, in the middle of some heated argument. They're not going to change their mind. That's for sure. Uh, I've had this experience. I'm sure you have too, Mike, where you heard something years ago and you did, it didn't really make sense to you at the time or you weren't able to digest it. But then years later, it just sort of clicks. And through your experience, through other knowledge that you've acquired, that seed that was planted years ago suddenly produces fruit. 
and it, it all comes together and makes sense. And that's what you're trying to do with it. You're not trying to convert somebody right there on the spot, trying to plant the seed so that hopefully someday there will be a, a harvest, right? Yeah. Or so they'll ask the question, really what you want to happen, I, what I want to happen when I talk to people, I want them to ask questions of the media or other purported authorities that try to make conclusory allegations with regard to, mm -hmm. to gun control so that that person that hears that, they have some information, ammunition to, to question what's being preached to them. Yeah. And then last one we have here is uh, we egotistical humans usually have to reach new conclusions on our own, which is building on what we've said so far. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of those, it reminds me of the saying, you can, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And I think that in a, the same sort of way, people have to reach and come to the conclusions on their own. And you just, you're just trying to help get them there by asking questions rather than telling them what to think. Mm -hmm. yep. Absolutely. It's much more effective that way. So uh, those are sort, sort of the cliff notes, but there are four questions, and these are just examples, like we mentioned earlier. There are four questions that the author here, Tom McHale, suggests just by example. The first, has murder really gone down in Australia since their gun ban? Why, why is that a good question? Well, because you'll hear that time and time again, particularly from what I think are maybe low information anti-gunners, anti-gun people, anti-freedom people. You'll hear, oh, it's, it worked in Australia, so we need to replicate that, do it here, and it'll work here. Uh, and there are a couple things that uh, this article points out, which we've pointed out too before this article. Uh, one of the things it talks about, I mean, when, think about this, it talks about a gun buyback. Well, what's a what's a buyback? If you I mean the gun that we never bought it from the government in the first place, how can the government buy something back that it never had and it never had or never sold? So yeah. anyway, that's a misnomer. And the other thing, the fact that it's a buyback is well, th there are some quote buybacks that I get or that are voluntary. You'll see here in cities, but what we're talking about with Australia was a gun ban. Mm -hmm. uh, men with guns will come and see you uh, if you do not comply with the law. That's the sort of gun buyback we're talking about here. Yeah. And women with guns will come and take forcibly take stuff from you yeah. uh, and send you to jail if you don't comply. But the other thing that's good about this question is you mentioned John Lott earlier and, of course, encourage people to go to crimeresearch.org. John Lott is one of the foremost statisticians and economists on the right to keep and bear arms. And what's interesting about John Lott is he doesn't really care about the constitutional argument, the policy or the, the constitutional argument, the individual rights argument. I wouldn't say he doesn't care, but that's not what he's. That's not part of his work. Focus, yeah. Uh, and he, he is coming at this from a pure just what do the numbers say? What's the good policy based on the numbers? And he, one thing he always says is you would think that. In, in these debates and these arguments that the anti-gunners make, you would think that in, they would be able to point to at least one country, one place where there's been a gun ban instituted and the, hom the homicide rate has gone down. And it hasn't. There, ha there is, he would think, just by random chance that maybe that has happened. But it hasn't. And that includes Australia. Yeah, and we'll talk about that a little bit here. This article, I won't read from it, but some of the highlights. The gun ban in Australia, the gun control, it left somewhere between 65 and 80 percent of all guns in circulation. So it didn't get rid of all of them, uh, but it got rid of a lot of them uh, from 20 to 35 percent, it looks like, or 20 to 
Yeah, 35% of those. Um, but the, what the funny thing is, um, over the six years after the buyback, overall homicide didn't change. And into it, so overall, in the six years after, we got rid of nearly a third of the guns, overall homicide rates didn't change. As a matter of fact, in two of the six years, homicide went up. Now, I didn't say homicide with guns, but homicide went up in two of the six years. The other fact often left out of the debate is that uh, uh, it was already declining. And that's what we see in a lot of these countries. You'll see, uh, if you looked at a graph, you'd see the, the rate of homicide going down naturally anyway. And then there's some government action taken, and the government takes credit for that continuing fall of whatever the statistic is. Well, and oftentimes it's even more interesting than that. There's already a decline, a steady decline in the homicide rate. And then the government institutes a ban of some sort, and the rate of homicide continues to decline, but at a lower rate. Yeah. Oftentimes. So the correlation, not causation, we'll talk about that. The correlation is, is that just like John, one of John Lott's books, More Guns, Less Crime, may in fact be something worth exploring. Yeah. So, so in fact, it's more than when they say the homicide rate or the murders have gone down, uh, Yes, they did, but they've been going down for a long time. And in fact, oftentimes they go down at a lower rate after the ban is instituted. So here, here's the takeaway if you want a fact. Uh, did you know that after the Australians took, off, took out 20 to 30 percent of the guns off the street, there was no observable reduction in murder rates? That's the facts. Yep. Yep. And in fact, the other thing too, and I think the article mentions this later, so I'll, I'll save it. But uh, a lot of the guns that went away in Australia came back over several years. Um, so most there's actually a higher rate of ownership today. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Than the there guns. was before the ban, and yet the homicide rate is still lower. Yeah. So exactly. So yeah, there was a after the after their gun ban, gun gun ownership went up some, yet gun homicides went down. I mean, yeah. homicides went down. Yeah, continue so, to go down. So. That's the first question. Has murder really gone down in Australia since their gun ban? And you can see there's a lot to talk about that's loaded in that question, right? And the answer is no. Yeah, the answer is no. So next question that's suggested here. Are a lot of people killed with assault rifles? And they have that in quotes, of course, because there's no such thing as an assault rifle uh, within yeah. the uh, definition. There's no definition of assault rifle anywhere. And of course, I mean, what people need to understand is back some long time ago, uh, the Clint, we had the Clinton assault weapons ban. Um, it was sunsetted and was um, eliminated. The ban was eliminated. But during the period that it was in effect, we saw no appreciable effect whatsoever uh, with respect to um, murders. So in, in our country, uh, we've just not seen that uh, have any effect, any kind of assault weapons ban. Yeah. But the other thing, the article doesn't mention that, but the article does mention that um, assault weapons were involved in fewer murders than bare hands and feet, uh, less than two-thirds as much as knives, and about the same as bats, clubs, and hammers. So when you see these politicians get out and talk about an, a, quote, assault weapon ban, end quote, uh, I mean, it's just hot air is all it is. I mean, it, we might as well ban ball bats and have more effect. Well, here's the other important point, too, is that people who advocate for gun control, gun banners, will often say, well, but there's still these thousands of 
homicides each year with with so-called assault rifles. So if we ban assault rifles, those thousands of murders that were committed with them would be eliminated. Well, let's talk about thousands of murders. According to the FBI in 2016, 374 people were murdered with rifles of any kind. Now that and that of any any rifle that doesn't include quote assault yeah. rifles in quote. So. Yeah, but the the point I want to make here is that just because, well, number one, there's there's a few things. Number one, just because you ban assault weapons doesn't mean that criminals won't continue to have them. That's the first point, uh, and commit crimes with them. The next point is that they always point to the gun. Uh, gun murders or murders committed with guns, but they don't look at the overall homicide rate. So just because somebody won't murder someone else or kill someone else with a gun doesn't mean they wouldn't also be willing to kill them with some other object or not comply with the gun ban to begin with. And that's why it's important to look at the overall homicide rate, not the rate of the uh, murders with guns. And of course, they understand that too. This is just the, they want to ban something. Yeah. Um, so we'll start here because these things, a lot of times the ones they're talking about, they want you to think about these evil guns that are black and look bad. And, mm-hmm. you know, let's get rid of After there's some mass shooting with a handgun, what do the politicians talk about? They want to get rid of assault weapons. Yeah. And they point to those because they look bad and they're supposedly evil. And, you know, yeah. they know all this, but they want to start somewhere. You can't ban all the other guns until you start somewhere. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention here, too, we've been talking about assault rifles or assault weapons. Uh, this is actually a term created by the Vol- Violence Policy Center back in the 1980s, I believe. Uh, and they knew, they, 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 start, they created this term, this phrase, with the intention of creating confusion among the general public about what it meant. Okay, that was its intention. This phrase, and uh, for that, for reference on that, you can look back to the uh, America's Rifle, the case for the AR-15 by Stephen Hallbrook. He talks about it in that book about the the genesis of the assault weapon term. And of course, it sounds like I said it's a black rifle, and it sounds evil, and yeah. assault sounds evil. It's offensive in nature. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah. It's marketing. Yeah. Exactly. And of course, assault rifle, uh, coincidentally. Uh, lines up with AR-15. AR, of course, does not mean assault rifle. It means armor-like rifle. But again, in an effort to create confusion among the public, of course, most people are led to believe that AR is an AR is an assault rifle. Um, and and I think the other thing is is that a, a lot of people used to be, you know, it, it allows um, them to segregate the gun owner population as well. Yeah, uh, maybe the folks that are quote hunters. That have some walnut stocked rifle or shotgun. Yeah. They hope that they'll kind of peel those people away, and they'll say, "Oh, we don't. I don't care about." I don't use that you for hunting anyway. That. Yeah, because they said you can't use it for hunting anyway. And if the ban doesn't affect me, then I don't care. So it's a way to yeah. separate us uh, folks that uh, do see the value in having the freedom to own firearms. Yeah. So first question: Has murder really gone down in Australia since their gun ban? Second question: and The answer is no. Right. Are a lot of people killed with assault rifles? And the answer is no. Well, right. I mean, a lot is no in the big scheme of things. Very few people. Well, and in fact, the article mentions that uh, rifles are used to commit murder 
at a rate uh, compared to handguns of 19 to 1. So handguns 19 times for every one time a rifle is used. Yeah, and it also mentions drunk driving. Right. Phenomenal amount of deaths that are caused by drunk driving, which, by the way, I'm going to mention this right now. When we talk about, you know, people misusing firearms to murder somebody, um, the anti-gunners want to be able to want folks to be able to sue the gun manufacturer because somebody misuses a product to murder someone else. Mm -hmm. But they don't want they're not advocating that the victim of a drunk driver be allowed to sue the manufacturer of the car used by the drunk driver if it's otherwise you know manufactured safely as intended yeah and you're and there's no defect in the product right when you're talking about the the protection of lawful commerce, commerce and arms act which uh, as you say it's common sense i mean you shouldn't be able to sue the company for somebody else's misuse of the product yeah. uh, ford shouldn't be liable as you say for uh, somebody driving their car drunk yeah. just at a the manufacturer of a firearm shouldn't be liable for somebody committing a murder with their firearm. Yeah, and if, I, if I stab somebody with this pen, whoever made this pen shouldn't be liable yeah. for my misuse of that pen. Right. But the anti-gunners, the anti-freedom folks want to apply that standard to firearms manufacturers because yeah. they want to run them out of business. Yeah, exactly. Through litigation. So the next question, the third one, what do you think is involved with more deaths, guns, alcohol, or drugs? And we've alluded to this a little bit with the drunk driving, uh, but the article here compares some of the numbers between guns, alcohol, and drugs. You want to say a little bit about that, Mike? Not much, because you're the you're the ones that's going to go off on this one for sure, because we're going to talk about the war on drugs here. The stats are, I think this is from 2016, uh, 22,000 some odd people were killed, killed themselves with guns, 22,000 killed themselves by other means, and 64,000 people killed themselves with drugs. Um, so in a society that is influenced to a great extent by the pharmacy lobby um, and by the war on drugs, the, the, the poor effects from this, quote, war on drugs that we have, um, we don't need to be focusing probably on the guns. We need to be focusing on other things when it comes to suicides. And by the way, some of the statistics so show if you do eliminate some guns, uh, are you eliminate guns? Uh, what people will do? Their in, in, intent on committing suicide is to just use some other means. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you said, of course, that I would go off um, on. the war, the war on drugs. Uh, um, for those who don't know, I do a lot of criminal defense work, and I see the effects of the war on drugs. Day, by the way, I'm not disagreeing with that. <laughs> day day to day, and I think it's fair to say that I'm going to go off on it a little bit here anyway. But one thing that always bothers me, uh, because there's some in cognitive dissonance or, or inconsistency, even within the pro-gun community on these issues, um, our right to keep and bear arms is fundamentally based in the right to self-ownership, the right to protect our own body, and the right to protect it against others who would intend to do us harm and by extension, the right to bear arms to achieve that goal. Yeah. I can't have individual liberty unless I also have the right to protect that individual. Yeah. liberty. But the idea starts with the concept of self-ownership. The right to self-defense is based in the idea of self-ownership. And 
laws making the consumption of certain products or items or uh, whatever illegal also violate the right, the fundamental right to self-ownership, the fundamental property right that we each have in our own body. I can't tell Mike that he can't consume Sweet a drug any more than I can tell him that he can't consume sugary drinks or sugary beverages. Okay. Both violate the fundamental right to self-ownership equally. Okay. Now, lots of people will point to the harmful effects of drugs, but the problem is that the war on drugs, and this is where people, again, are inconsistent, even the pro-gun folks, the war on drugs, by making certain products illegal, you create a black market for those products. Those products do not go away. Who gets them? Criminals. The same, same, the same thing that we say about firearms. Just banning guns, all that means is that you're going to take away the rights of law-abiding citizens. Well, guess what? Who's going to have, what do we always say? Who's going to have the guns? The criminals, which is exactly what we don't want. It creates a black market for the guns. It gives the most dangerous people the power over that market. It creates a black market, and lots of people are killed in that black market, uh, whether it's for guns or drugs. And these are interrelated, okay, because oftentimes the criminals with guns are also in the black market for drugs, mm -hmm. okay? So the drugs become more dangerous. The guns become more dangerous. The people with both of them become more dangerous. And the drugs, the harmful effects of these drugs, a lot of people know there's been a huge influx of fentanyl and drugs that are laced with fentanyl, which is responsible for a lot of the overdoses that people experience. That fentanyl is in the drugs, be not because the people want them or want the fentanyl, because they don't want to die. The people using the drugs don't want to die. It's in the drugs because it's a black market and the manufacturers are trying to make the product as potent as possible in as small a quantity as possible so that they can ship it smuggle. more smuggle it more easily exactly what happened during prohibition of alcohol nobody was peddling beer during prohibition okay people were making the highest uh proof alcohol they could possibly produce so that they could ship the most potent product they could in as uh, little quantity as possible mm -hmm. so it's exactly interrelated here, but it all stems. The point I want to make is this all stems from the concept of self ownership. And I always I say this all the time: if we eliminate the war on drugs, because let's face it, the drugs are winning the war on drugs. There's no doubt about that. We eliminate the war on drugs. We eliminate the violence around the war on drugs. A lot of these numbers about uh, murders committed with guns are going to plummet. That's the single best way. If gun controllers really cared about reducing the murder rates, that would be the single best way to reduce the murder rate is to end the war on drugs. And you'd, you'd shut down the violence associated with the war on drugs, and the drugs that people are using would be less deadly. Yep, and we're not advocating the use of drugs by, in, by any stretch of the imagination, but the war on drugs uh, is not helping people avoid or get out of their addictions it's probably making it worse and the war on drugs along with probably uh, some of the anti-terrorism stuff um, has probably caused a greater erosion of individual liberty particularly with regard to the fourth amendment than any other quote war uh, in at least in american history yeah. um, 
So it's just it's produced nothing, at least in my mind, uh, unless you're a government agent who gets a nice salary and a pension from participating in the war on drugs. Um, it's done nothing um, in terms of reducing harm to the American public generally. And it's certainly done nothing for our pocketbooks in terms of taxpayers. Yeah, yeah it's all been all these devastating effects have been accomplished. Okay, devastating effects accomplished at a huge expense. Yeah, huge expense. So anyway, but but so what we're trying to say is if you apply principles of liberty to to guns in one way, they we hope that folks will apply them to other public policy uh, debates. In the same way. Yeah. And also, by the way, the Constitution provides the government no authority to or power to regulate guns beyond what's uh, in the Constitution. And guess what? There's no enumerated power in the Constitution about We're talking about the federal government yeah. <laughs> about regulating firearms. Likewise, there is no enumerated power in the Constitution about regulating the consumption of drugs. Yeah. And basically, what we're talking about, if you want to, we're going to get sidetracked here, at least, and I'm not a an expert on this, but it's basically what we're advocating for is a non-aggression principle. If the law isn't doing, I mean, if you're not doing any harm to anybody else, you ought to be left alone. Yeah, exactly. All right. right let's go. I told you he would go off. On yeah. That. So yeah, exactly. Mike, Mike warned you all, uh, get on my soapbox about the war on drugs. So, uh, if you're interested in that stuff, I've talked about that in other episodes, the war on drugs. And some people say just real quickly, using drugs, is not a victimless crime. I've explained that in great detail in, in other episodes. Uh, it, it's this fundamental confusion about what a crime is and should be and uh, what right we have to dictate what other people can do with their bo own bodies. Uh, yeah, so. which would make me get off on another subject. What is the book? Three Felonies a Day? Yeah. It's just we're both lawyers. There's no way you can keep up with the laws. Yeah. There are too many laws and too many prohibitions out there, most, most of which are just made up, prohibited activity, and they're not based in any kind of moral authority whatsoever. Anyway, we're so, going to get into all kinds of subjects. Let's, yeah. let's get back so, to the argument. Yeah, so let's recap the questions we've discussed so far. First one, has murder really gone down in Australia since their gun ban? No. Are a lot of people killed with assault rifles? No. What do you think is involved with more deaths, guns, alcohol, or drugs? And by I far, know. drugs. Drugs. <laughs> and then alcohol. And alcohol. Uh, and then finally, the last question that's suggested here by the author, does England have fewer murders than the United States because of gun laws? And what's important about that question, Mike? No, the answer, once again, we're going to give the answer is it's no in our estimation, or at least there's no evidence to suggest the answer should be yes. Let me put it that way. Uh, England and Australia have always had lower murder rates than the United States um, since the beginning of time. Um, and they've always been different between the United States and, and, the, uh, and the United Kingdom. Um, One thing I'll interject here. I mean, I was going to get oh. – go ahead. You oh. Go ahead and interject while yeah. I'm going to get a stat so, here. So, yes, their their homicide rate is lower, but as you said, it's it's always been lower. In fact, quite a bit lower. But does it have anything to do with their gun laws? And the article points to a few uh, statistics here that show actually the murder rates – in the UK, 
uh, went up slightly after their gun ban. Uh, again, another example, like we talked about earlier, where John Lott says, just by chance, you think that at least one country, there'd be one country we could point to where they've instituted a gun ban and the murder rate has gone down. Yeah. Well, what's in inter- Yeah. UK, Australia, not true. Nowhere is that true. Yeah. And what's also true about the statistics is I think there's a differential. The difference between murder rates have actually gotten closer together between the United States and Great Britain. Despite the fact that the British have instituted more gun control and we've instituted probably less gun control over the last 10 or 20 years here, Um, you would think that the opposite would occur, but it's not. And in fact, the number of guns owned in the United States, especially since uh, President Obama was elected in, when was that, 2008, Mm -hmm. uh, has skyrocketed. I mean, the number of guns sold in the United States... Obama was the greatest gun salesman in the history of the world. Uh, There are so many guns that have been purchased in the United States since 2008, yet you see no change in the homicide rate here. Yeah, one of the stats from the article, the United States has seen a doubling over the last couple of decades. Uh, And if you believed, you know, that gun control correlates to lower murder rates, you would think that murder rates would have gone up in the United States. But they haven't. They've gone down. As a matter of fact, they fell in half over the last couple of decades. Yeah. Another stat is when England banned virtual handguns and other types of guns in 1997, uh, you would think murder rates would fall, but they didn't. Yeah. yeah. And these are not outliers. These no. are not – we're pointing to the UK and Australia because they're often the ones that the gun control advocates point to. But there are numerous other examples of countries that have instituted bans where there's either been no effect or the homicide murder rate actually went up. Yeah, and like I said, our the difference in rates have gotten closer together while they've been more constraining in terms of their rights and the ability to own a firearm, and we've become more free. Uh, okay. Our murder rates go down. Uh, as Once again, it's, it's John Lott's book, More Guns, Less Crime, proves to be true uh, when you read this article. Yeah. So uh, – just some this this episode has mostly been some food for thought about how to approach these conversations with with your family, with your loved ones, with friends you may know who uh, support gun control. But this article, and I think uh, at least me, I, I, I suggest that this approach is more effective with most people than the abrasive approach where you're just name calling or calling people stupid or just blankly saying that they're wrong. Uh, Listen to them. Find out where they are, what their assumptions are, and just plant the seed. Ask a question, and hopefully you'll lead them down the path to um, to freedom. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great advice. Like I said, I'm the pot calling, <laughs> calling the kettle black. It's difficult to me for me to do, but I think in a lot, and maybe most, if not, I won't say all yet, because there are some some sometimes I think when it's effective just to be blunt. I'll leave it at that and, and yeah. completely honest. Um, but I think uh, you give good advice. I think um, uh, this article gives some good advice here. And um, uh, what was I uh, trying to think of his name now? Uh, Gun Talk. 
Oh, Tom Gresham. Gresham. Thank you. Sorry about that. Tom Gresham gives some good advice. So I think people ought to follow that. But I want to mention one other thing, too. I think another thing that we can do with folks like this when we're around guns, let them know you're a responsible gun owner. Make sure you practice the the safety rules of always keeping your uh, your firearm pointing in a safe direction. Always keep your finger off the trigger. Always treat all guns as they're loaded. Mm -hmm. Um, Always know your target, what's beyond. Be able to talk about those things to people. Demonstrate that you're a responsible gun owner. Uh, demonstrate that you're a responsible person and they'll listen to you. Uh, read Heller versus DC. Read Bruin. Alex can link. We've talked about those in the past. Understand the law with respect to firearms um, and show show that you're a thoughtful, responsible person. Uh, and I think that provides you with more credibility as well. Yeah. A lot of a lot of the gun control advocates just think that the gun community is full of a bunch of blowhards, but we're not. And most 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 of the gun community is very thoughtful, very intelligent, very educated. Uh, and so make sure that <clears throat> whenever you're in conversation with these folks, you, you, you I mean, obviously don't act pretentious or anything, but uh, let them know that you're re- responsible um, and, and don't provide them with ammunition, so to speak, uh, you know, that they're just a bunch of hotheads. So uh, that's, that's the message that we want to convey. Uh, with that said, Mike, anything else you'd like to add before we close up the show here? We've talked about how hopefully you can think about what you're doing in in terms of your own strategies out there in terms of dealing with folks, but don't forget about those gun organizations, Firearms Policy Coalition, Gun Owners of America, Second Amendment Foundation. Um, I'm not sure I've I've left out some, but those folks need support to make, if you can give five or 10 or 20 bucks, give it to them because there's a lot of litigation uh, going on out there that's very important. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, thanks, Mike, for coming back on the show. I hope everybody enjoyed uh, the episode, learned a little uh, something. Keep it in mind during your next conversation with a gun control advocate. Uh, Like I said, throughout the show, I'll link to a lot of these resources in the show notes. I'd encourage you to check out the show notes and check out those resources. But also, I post every episode on our website at forgeoffreedom.com. You can find each episode and all of the show notes there so that they're easily searchable. Uh, So I'd encourage you to go and check out the website as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or on X at Forge of Freedom. Uh, I post there a fair amount and share quite a bit of content as well. So make sure to check out the website and the Twitter page for Forge of Freedom. So sometimes when you're the Forge of Freedom, you have to be a little nuanced rather than completely... Yeah. Forging. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. All right, everybody, I hope that you, uh, like I said, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please like and subscribe to help us spread the message of freedom. And next week for Monday Gun Day, I think we're going to be talking about uh, trainers that you should know about if you're a gun owner and you want to take your training and your skills to the next, and your mindset, more importantly, to the next level. So uh, stay tuned for next week's Monday Gun Day episode. Uh, And until then, remember, You are the Forge of Freedom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Forge of Freedom. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Alex, you can go to forgeoffreedom.com or follow him on Twitter at Forge of Freedom. Until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom.